0: As we get going, I want you to think about maybe your favorite movie, television show, kind of high point or climax to a story. My wife and I just finished recently watching a Netflix series that we've been working through over a number of months. And in this series, there's a relationship that you are just cheering for and rooting on literally right from the beginning all the way to the very end. And it goes up, it's got ups and downs and it ebbs and it flows and it seems like it's gonna work at one point and then it doesn't. It's just classic kind of television drama relationship. And in the very last episode, the series finale, there is this moment where Luke, who is the male figure in the relationship, has put together this big party town-wide. He's pulled together this whole small town to celebrate Lorelei and really her daughter, Rory. And the celebration kind of going away party goes off without a hitch. It's this wonderful kind of end of a series sort of moment. And then at the end of that party in the evening, Lorelai finds out from one of her friends that it was Luke that put together this whole thing, this big surprise, and did all of this work. And she goes to find him. And they, they meet each other in a street. And it's this perfect kind, like there's like music that's playing in the background that crescendos throughout the scene, you know, and there's a bunch of emotion in it. And it's just sort of pregnant with like all this possibility and all the hope that you've had for this relationship for the whole series. And she looks at Luke and she just says, thank you. And he looks back at her and he says, no problem. And there's this kind of heavy silence. And she says, Luke, there's another big pause. The music is kind of swelling a little bit. And he delivers what is just like the perfect line. He says, I just like to see you happy. And it is like everything has come together. It's the high point of this relationship, the climax of what has, this has been leading to over seven seasons. And you get 33 seconds of it because it's the series finale. And it's basically the end of the episode. But you finally got that big payoff moment. You could could put any sort of Hollywood story or novel or television series into that and pick out that sort of high point moment. That is where we are this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 18 down to 29, and it is the culmination of what the author of Hebrews has been saying up to this point. We've mentioned this multiple times throughout this series that the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, focuses on the reality, the truth that Jesus is better. He is better than all things, but specifically, he's a better savior than you are a sinner. He's a better savior than you are a sinner. That is what the author of Hebrews has been pointing out. He is the only savior that could overcome your sin. Let me kind of build out what Hebrews has been about up to this point. Hebrews begins with a little short introduction. It's four verses, just kind of introduces who Jesus is, but it's this sweeping theological statement that gives kind of the thesis to the letter in the second half of Hebrews chapter one, verse three, where it says, after making purification for sins, he, that's Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And from there, the letter of Hebrews sets out to prove that that's true. And it does it through an extensive series of comparison and contrast, that Jesus is better than all of these Old Testament things. He's better than angels, not necessarily an Old Testament thing, but he's superior even to angels. He's better than Moses. He's this perfected form of humanity. He's better than priests, whether it's just Levitical priests or the great high priest. He's better than Melchizedek, that this shadowy Old Testament figure is actually cut from the cloth of Jesus, pointing forward to him. Uh, he's, Jesus is better than all the Old Testament sacrifices and the law. He's better than all the faithful people of the past, that we can look to them as, as models or as encouragements, but Jesus is better than them. And then there's this String of warnings sprinkled throughout the letter. There's a short little warning, kind of comes very succinctly in chapter three. There's a very succinct warning that comes in chapter 12. But the big three warning passages are in Hebrews chapter two, we're told don't drift away from Jesus. In Hebrews chapter six, we're told don't fall away from Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're told don't run away from Jesus. Woven all throughout this testimony of a Jesus who is better, the only thing, the only being sufficient to be your savior is a warning that you must persevere in him. In fact, Hebrews 3.14 says that best, that for we have become participants with Christ if we hold firmly until the end. Part of the measure or the evidence of the truth of your faith is that you remain faithful until the very end. There are some pastoral encouragements sprinkled, out the letter, sprinkled throughout the letter that we're not to be immature believers, that we're to strive to live godly lives, that we need to avoid walking in deliberate, intentional, consistent, unrepentant sin. And then everything comes to its culmination in Hebrews chapter 12, specifically verses 18 to 24. Now we're gonna look at 18 all the way down to 29, which is the end of the chapter, but the real high point is verses 18 to 24 in Hebrews chapter 12. Then from verse 25 of chapter Twelve, all the way through verse 19 in the last chapter of Hebrews is kind of like the conclusion or like some, uh, what do we do in light of this? And then there's kind of a a true conclusion, some farewell, if you will, from the author that takes place in the final six verses, Hebrews 13 uh, verse 20 down to 25. All that to say this, what we're going to see today is the pinnacle of all that the author of Hebrews has been saying throughout this letter. It is the big picture of a Jesus who is better. The ultimate picture in the author of Hebrews' mind and in the mind of the Holy Spirit the, the mind of the Lord, the ultimate picture that Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner, and it comes in the form of one final comparison contrast, a comparison contrast that takes a high point from the Old Testament, the Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai to receive the law, and the high point of the New Testament running in the background of this entire letter, but also of this passage, and that is of Jesus on the cross, and that his death there makes it possible for you to go to this other mountain, Mount Sinai, that's what's this passage is going to say. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see three mountains in this passage, all in light of one glorious God and one great Savior. Now, in order to do this, uh, we need some critical background knowledge. And so rather than having you pause the video and read the Hebrews 12 passage there where you are, I want you to pause and read what is kind of essential background understanding for this passage. We're living in this time right now where we're all trying to figure out what is an essential worker. Uh, well, this is essential background knowledge and it's come from it comes from Exodus chapter 19. So here's what I want you to do. In just a second, pause this video, read all of Ch- Exodus chapter 19 and then do the following exercise. That is, if you've got children in the room, I want you to have them draw what they think that scene would look like. What do they But based on what they hear, what do they see? What does Exodus chapter 19 look like? If you don't have children or you don't want to draw, just have a conversation about it. What is the scene? What does it look like? What would it sound like? There's a lot of sort of visual imagery that takes place in Exodus chapter 19. And I want us to be very clear on it before we read Hebrews chapter 12. So pause this video. Read the passage. Maybe read it a couple times like Joe had us do last week uh, with Hebrews 12, 14 to 17. But maybe read it a couple times and then ask yourself that question. What does it look like? What is the scene? And when you're done with that, pray and then unpause the video and we'll start to work our way through the Hebrews chapter 12 passage. All right. I'm going to read Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. It says this For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, You have come to Mount Zion, to a city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festival gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. That is the high point of the book of Hebrews. Now... Let's kind of break it apart. Let's explain a little bit. And I want to do this via a Venn diagram. So if you've got something there in front of you, if you're a note taker, draw two circles overlapping in the middle, of a Venn diagram, and above one put Mount Sinai, and above the other circle put Mount Zion. And we're just going to work our way through this. What does this passage say, and how does it all come together? And I will show you why this is the pinnacle of this letter. First difference Mount Sinai is a physical place. Mount Zion is a spiritual place. In the Exodus account from Exodus 19 that you just read, the description is spread out over the course of the chapter, but here we get it all in quick succession that Mount Sinai can be touched, that there was blazing fire, there was darkness, gloom, a storm, trumpet blasts, the sound of words. It's a very sort of tactile description that the author of Hebrews runs back to back to back to back to to give you an understanding. This was a physical place. The Israelite people gathered there. And then you get a description of Mount Zion. It starts in verse 22. And it's a spiritual place. It's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the key there. It's a heavenly place. It's not something that you could go and touch. Instead, the author uses that heavenly Jerusalem. He's using Mount Zion to make sure that his readers aren't thinking of the Zion in actual Jerusalem. He wants them to understand that he's talking about a mountain that is a heavenly place where believers from throughout human history are joined by what we're told are myriads of angels or throngs of angels. Here's the next contrast point. Mount Sinai was a fearful place. Mount Zion is a festive place. Sinai we're told that the Israelites beg not to hear directly from God. They send Moses up in their place, but even he is trembling with fear. That's what verse 21 of Hebrews 12 tells us. And it's because this, the appearance of a righteous God is so dazzling and so majestic that it's terrifying. And there's this knowledge that the people of Israel have that if anything touches Mount Sinai, them or even an animal, it has to be put to death. Contrast that with the description of Mount Zion. We're told that there are myriads of angels, a festive gathering, an assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, that there is God who is a judge of all and the spirits of righteous people made perfect and Jesus is there who's the mediator of a new covenant. It is a festival sort of atmosphere. Revelation describes it as a wedding banquet and the guest list includes all those whose names were written in heaven. That great cloud of witnesses that we talked talked about from Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, they're present there. All the great Men and women of faith listed in Hebrews chapter 11, they're present there and it is a festival. The third contrast, Mount Sinai, what marks the Israelite people is sin. Mount Zion, what marks God's people is righteousness. Sin is what made it so that at Mount Sinai, the holiness of God would consume anyone who touched the mountain. In their sin-stained state, they could not dare approach the unsurpassed, unmatched, unthinkable holiness of God. Mount Zion, on the other hand, is a totally different mood. Why? Because it's full of righteous people made perfect. Hebrews 12:23. Note, there are no inherently righteous human beings at Mount Zion. Instead, there are people who have been made perfect. What permeates this heavenly Mount Zion is the righteousness of Jesus that has been given to those who have been saved by grace through faith in him. Righteous people made perfect by Jesus. Now, note, God is the judge of all in both places. We're told that in the middle of verse 23 that there's a judge who is God of all. That's true at Sinai. That's true at Zion. One last contrast. Mount Sinai is all about the law. Mount Zion is all about grace. Sinai, this is the high point of Israel receiving the law, which was intended to display that no one could ever ascend the mountain of God's holiness on their own. Contrast that with Mount Zion, where the reality is that you don't need to ascend that mountain because Jesus has done it for you and he has made you perfect. This is the crux of what Hebrews is all about. Everything in the Old Testament could point forward to Jesus, but it could not, not by the laws, not by the sacrifices, not by the priests. It could not make a person perfect. But now something has made it so that we can be made perfect. And that is Jesus who is better. Now, in the middle of your Venn diagram there, what is the similarity between these two places? And it is this. One glorious God. One glorious God in all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, all of his justice, all of his wrath, all of his grace, all of his mercy all of his love. He is present in both places, just as present at Mount Sinai as he is at Mount Zion. And you ask yourself, how is the mood of these places so different? It almost seems like there's a different God present in Exodus 19 than is being described in Hebrews chapter 12 at Mount Zion. Let me just give a quick little word here. Um, If you've been around the church very long, you've probably heard people talk about heresy. Heresy is just a a fancy word that means the the denial of a truth that's central or essential to the gospel. To quote, and Duncan, a heresy is something that strikes at the heart of Christian truth. There's a heresy, a false belief called Marcionism. It was put forward by um, a man named Marcion. And basically what Marcionism says is that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God of the New Testament. You don't need to remember the name of that person, of that particular heresy. It's not like there's a quiz or a test at the end. But you should be aware that that heresy actually still exists today. There are many today who would say that we need to separate or unhitch or divorce the Jesus of the New Testament from this angry-seeming God of the Old Testament. That they're not compatible. They seem like two different things that is a heresy. It strikes at the heart of Christian truth. It is a denial of a central and essential element of who God is and what the gospel is. The reason being is that if you try to remove the fullness of God's character from who he is as displayed in the Old Testament and displayed in the New Testament, consistent throughout all scripture, you would have to do away with the cross entirely how can this be the same God, the same God at Mount Sinai as at Mount Zion? It's because there's a third mountain. That mountain's actually a hill. It's the hill of Calvary outside Jerusalem where Jesus carried his cross and was crucified. And it's just running in the background of this passage. It's the operating system that all of Hebrews runs on, the foundation that it stands on top of. The only way you move from the law, from being marked by sin, from the fear present at Mount Sinai to the grace and the righteousness, the perfection given to you, the festival attitude and and, um, environment of Mount Zion is through the cross, which was fixed on the mountain of Calvary. There is where the blood of Jesus was spilled to quote from verse 24 here. The sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel is actually where the list of faithful people in Hebrews chapter 11 began. His blood cried out for vengeance against Cain who murdered him. His brother killed him. Jesus' blood cries out for mercy for his brothers and sisters whose sin was responsible for his murder. Calvary reminds us that Jesus is a better savior than you are, a sinner. Calvary reminds us that the fire of God's wrath consumed the sun in order that the festival of his mercy might be thrown wide open for all who believe in Jesus Christ. There's a scene in one of the Chronicles of Narnia books called The Silver Chair, and it involves Aslan, this large majestic lion figure who is uh, the figure that depicts God throughout the series, and Jill, a young, one of the young heroines of the story, and she's really thirsty. She comes up on a stream, and as she's approaching that stream to get a drink, she sees Aslan, the lion, nearby. And Aslan, Speaks to her, she stops dead in her tracks. And he says, are you not thirsty? If you are thirsty, come and drink, which ought to remind us of, you know, like Isaiah 55 or John 7, where Jesus says that the thirsty will come and drink and they will be satisfied. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I "'Would you mind going away while I do?' said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl, and as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. "'Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come?' said Jill. "'I make no promises,' said the lion." Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said? I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. The lion just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That is the truth of this one glorious God. We cannot unhitch ourselves from the fear and the trembling of Mount Sinai because of the presence of God's grace in Jesus. In fact, all of the fear, all of the wrath, all of the trembling of Mount Sinai is present at Mount Calvary, where it's put entirely on Jesus, who is better. All of God's justice, all of God's wrath toward sin, placed squarely upon the shoulders, of his son, Richard Phillips says it this way. If you are going to have the thirst of your soul filled by the waters of eternal life, then you are going to have to deal with this kind of God. He will not move out of the way for you. He will not become more palatable for he is infinitely wonderful. He is the Savior, the God of majesty and grace. The fear and trembling of Mount Sinai to the festival environment of Mount Zion, you do it through the cross on Mount Calvary. It's running in the background, three mountains, one glorious God and one Savior who is better. Look at the very start of verse 25. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. This is actually where Hebrews started. If you were to go back to Hebrews chapter one, the letter begins, long ago, God spoke. In these days, he has spoken to us by his son. Don't reject the one who speaks. What happened at Mount Sinai? God spoke and it was terrifying. What happened on that hill outside of Jerusalem, Mount Calvary, the same God spoke and it was still terrifying because the sun was crushed and yet through that righteousness was made available. And so the call is to not reject the God who speaks because he offers you a Jesus who is better. Nothing else can save you, but Jesus can. To have rejected the word of the Lord at Mount Sinai and gone and touched the mountain or approached Him in any way would have meant an Israelite's death. To reject the God who spoke at Mount Calvary, reject the Son, reject the message of Jesus, would be to put yourself squarely into the just Judgment of God, the end of all things. And what will await you is eternal spiritual death. But if you receive the word of God, spoken in his word, spoken in his son, spoken on the cross when Jesus declared that it is finished, if you would receive that word, then you will be welcomed to that festival atmosphere at Mount Zion, that heavenly Jerusalem. I actually want us to take communion now right here in the middle of the service. And so uh, here's what I want you to do. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then we invite you to take communion. And I want you to uh, actually turn off or pause the video and take it there in the room. Spend a minute in humble, (laughs) thankful gratitude that the fire of God's wrath consumed the sun, that the festival of his mercy might be thrown wide open for us. You can do that with your children. If your children have not placed their faith in Jesus yet, we would encourage you to still allow them to see what you're doing and use it as a discipleship moment, but don't uh, don't have them take the elements. If you're watching this and you've not ever placed your faith in Christ, uh, I first and foremost want to invite you to do that this morning. You can do it right where you are, to confess that you are a sinful human being, as all of humanity is, and that you need a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus, Uh, I would ask that you not take communion alongside us this morning, but if you have, pause the video, spend some time in prayer, take communion, spend a moment thanking God for the gift of Jesus Christ, a Savior who is better. All right, let's finish the passage here because what comes immediately after this are actually just three simple commands. What do we do in light of this? In fact, this actually wraps up all of Hebrews chapter 12 which started with, which started with run with endurance. And here's gonna be the answer for how we do that. We're told uh, in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come. This is one of the great mysteries and wonders of the Christian life. If you've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you live in the here and now, but you have both feet firmly planted at Mount Zion, at that festival gathering. You're simultaneously traveling through this life while also being fixed in that heavenly city in what Hebrews is going to call the kingdom of God. And that means that the church, each individual local church, the big C church globally, and every individual member of the church is a walking outpost of heaven. A walking embassy to the kingdom of God right here, right now. If you go to a foreign country and you visit the United States embassy in that place, they will welcome you to foreign soil. It's like you're in the United States when you're at that embassy. That's what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. You have come to Mount Zion. You are in the kingdom right here, right now. And there are some fundamentals to what it means to be part of that kingdom. That's what comes starting in verse 25. We already looked at the first one. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, that's about Sinai, even less will we if we turn away from the one who warns us from heaven. That is about Jesus. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will, not, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Item number one, do not reject the one who speaks. Don't reject him for salvation. If you're watching with us this morning, you found us on Facebook, someone sent a link to you and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, been saved by the grace of God, do not reject the one who speaks. You do so at eternal peril. But what is held out to you is joy everlasting, true life, life everlasting, all the deepest desires of your heart fulfilled by God. In Jesus, Don't reject the one who speaks, but as Christians, we also, for our sanctification, should not reject the one who speaks. We are those, followers of Jesus, we are those who receive rather than reject the Word of God. We received it in Jesus Christ, and we continue to receive it throughout our lives. What does it look like to be a walking outpost of heaven, to be an embassy of the kingdom right here and right now? It looks like receiving the Word of God. All of the word of God. There's a quote from a Puritan author. His name was John Owens. And one of the pillars of kind of Puritanism as a Christian movement was a conscientious practice of obedience to all truth known at the present. You see, we often, uh, and rightfully so, we talk about Christianity being a matter of the heart. And I think oftentimes we think that that means our obedience has to wait until our heart gets in the right spot. Now, God can see our motives and we ought to obey from pure, joyful, humble hearts. But at the same time, we ought to be obedient as evidence that we are receiving God's word rather than rejecting it. What comes first, the heart or the obedience? I would argue that it's kind of a circle. Sometimes you obey and then your heart follows. Sometimes your heart is on board and your behavior follows. But we should receive all that the Lord says. Do not reject the one who speaks. Number two, we are to be thankful Let me pick back up in verse 27. This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken. That is created things so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Be thankful for an unshakable kingdom. Picture yourself walking off the beach. You've been there all day long in and out of the water. There's just kind of sand everywhere. You pack up all of your stuff. You've flipped the towel a few times to try to get the sand out of it. And you know that you've got to walk across some more sand before you get to the parking lot or to a boardwalk or something. And so you just kind of carry your shoes or your flip flops. You get all the way to that boardwalk and all the way to your car or you make it to a little shower thing and you try to get your feet cleaned off and then you try to get your shoes cleaned off and you like shake what's on there loose. You're trying to get all the loose sand off and the particles that aren't just like pounded into uh, the material of your shoes shakes off and drops onto the ground. You see a little pile of it there on the floor. This reference to God shaking the earth, it comes from... Uh, Haggai chapter 2, it's a reference to the fact that at the end of all things, God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. Jesus is going to come back and everything that's not of God's kingdom will be shaken loose and it will be gone. This earth and its brokenness will pass away And the only thing that will remain are those which were held fast by the hands of the Lord in his kingdom. That will be his people. God will shake everything once more and everything that's not of his kingdom will come loose. That is an eschatological and end times reality. It's also, to borrow from the rest of Hebrews chapter 12, a present day reality. What's happening when we're disciplined? God is shaking loose that which is not part of his kingdom inside of us. He is loosening our grip to help us shed those things. They're not going with us into eternity. We might as well loose them now, let them go now. You've got two feet in the kingdom while you travel through this life. And that means that we ought to only clutch on to that which cannot be shaken loose. We ought to grab tight onto the savior and be willing to let go of everything else. And sometimes God disciplines us in order to force us to let go. What did Hebrews 12, one and two tell us that we should do? Remove all of our hindrances or obstacles and the sin that so easily entangles. What happens when we don't do that? Sometimes God's gotta shake it loose for us. The third item, look at verse uh, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The third piece is serve acceptably with reverence and awe. That acceptable service is defined for us by the word of God, which we are to receive rather than reject. What does it look like to live in that unshakable kingdom? It looks like obedience, acceptable service, and it looks like obedience that's marked by reverence and awe. We get this reverence and awe by keeping all three mountains in view. Mount Sinai, picture of God's holiness and the consequences of sinful humanity trying to come into contact. Calvary, where Jesus, a Savior who is better, died on the cross in our place. And then Zion, where our feet are Fixed in a festival gathering alongside myriads of angels and all of the saints and brothers and sisters in the Lord from all of history and from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We keep those three mountains in view, and it ought to produce awe inside of us. That God would allow His Son to be crushed, that we might be moved from Zion or from Sinai to Zion. That should produce awe inside of us. It should produce a reverence inside of us that God would send a Savior who is better than all of our sinning, who would send a Savior who is sufficient to pay the price for all the consequences of our sin, and that he would do so despite the fact that we don't deserve it in the least bit. The balance of that creates reverence and awe, which drives us to serve him here and now, according to the manner which he has called us to, letting go of that which does not cling to the unshakable Christ in order that we might listen to and heed the voice of a God who's spoken to us by his Son and through his word. This passage in Hebrews is not the only place that uses this kind of language. In fact, it's what First Peter actually begins with. Peter addresses his letter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, feet planted in the kingdom, traveling through this world. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy, Calvary. He has given us birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, here's Zion, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You rejoice in this, yet now, for a short time, it is necessary you suffer grief in various trials. Here comes this discipline. Why? So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold which perishes, though it is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor acceptable service at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, reverence and awe, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Three mountains, one glorious God. Let me just run this backwards in Hebrews chapter 12 as we close. Remember, this all started with a call to endurance. A picture of the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11 and then Hebrews 12, 1 and four. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. How do we endure? We remember where our feet are planted. We're traveling through this life fixed in God's kingdom in, at Mount Zion, that heavenly city. And how did we get there? Well, we keep our eyes on Jesus who at Mount Calvary made it possible for us to be saved by the grace of God. We understand that we're members of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That when discipline comes, we see it as a delight because it is an opportunity to let go of something that is not fit for those of us who are part of God's kingdom, who are outposts of heaven, embassies of the kingdom. We look forward to the day when we will join that great cloud of witnesses and those myriads of angels, when we will come alongside all the faithful whose names were written in heaven. We remember that God is holy, awesome, terrifying, but we also rest in the reality that he poured out his just wrath on his son that we might be clothed in righteousness and become those who have been made perfect. And we remind ourselves that if that God is for us, who could be against us? That though my sin is great, we sang this right before we started looking at Hebrews chapter 12. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. He is a better Savior than I am a sinner. He is a better Savior than you are a sinner. The high point of Hebrews, the ultimate comparison contrast, is that you need not stand and tremble at Mount Sinai because you can bow humbly at Mount Calvary and rejoice at Mount Zion. Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. We're gonna close this morning by singing, O come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that speaks better things. Let's sing together.